Life Audio. Hello and welcome to the Capital Ministries podcast. At Capital Ministries, our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ in the political arena throughout the world, and we do this through weekly in-depth discipleship Bible studies. I'm Frank Sontag, and I look forward to sharing these Bible studies written by my friend Ralph Drawlinger. As president and founder of Capital Ministries, Ralph is teaching the same study to three different groups in D.C. this week. He holds a House Members Bible Study, a Senate Members Bible Study, and a Zoom study with former White House Cabinet members. In this week's study titled Part 2, The Biblical Basis for America's Commitment to Israel, in Part 1 of the series, we looked at some Israel 101 biblical passages regarding why every person, group, and nation should be supportive of Israel. This week, we will dig deeper and call the study Israel 401. Before we get started, let us hear a word from our sponsor. This Capital Ministries Bible study from President and Founder Ralph Trollinger is entitled The Biblical Basis for America's Commitment to Israel, Part 2. In Part 1 of this series, we looked at some Israel 101 biblical passages regarding why every person, group, and nation should be supportive of Israel. This week, we will dig deeper. Call this study Israel 401. Keep in mind, given what's happening in Israel, I think it is timely to provide this two-part series on Israel from a Bible teacher's perspective. Nearly every public servant who has his or her ear to the ground knows that the Bible enjoins individuals and nations to bless Israel. In Genesis 12:3, God states in his promise to Abraham, Israel's patriarch, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. Not all, however, who follow Christ are pro-Israel. Within evangelicalism, there is a camp who holds to what I explained and defined in Part 1 as replacement theology. The other more sophisticated theological name is supersessionism. These adherents believe the church supersedes Israel. They embrace what then amounts to a contextually descriptive title, replacement theology. In this study, I will use these terms interchangeably. By way of review, the replacement theology crowd believes God is done with Israel, having replaced her with his church. The church then is the new Israel. Therefore, the conditional promise, cross-reference Genesis 12.3, stated previously in the Abrahamic covenant, cross-reference Genesis 15.18, now applies to the church. What does the Bible say about all this? What do you believe? How an American governing authority reasons this issue from Scripture has huge implications in American foreign policy, and as many conclude, if or whether God will continue to bless America. Our introduction. The study should prove quite intellectually challenging to most who read it or listen to it. Do not let that deter you from persevering through so you may understand what follows as this is a critically important subject for anyone holding office. As usual, I have attempted to explicate in a way that makes the study bite sizable and digestible so as to aid your comprehension. Stay with me. 
Challenges Facing Supersessionism. If the conditional promise, cross-reference Genesis 12.3, of the Abrahamic Covenant, cross-reference Genesis 15.18, remains intact, then God's blessing on individuals and nations is in part predicated on how one treats Israel as a nation. That being the case, a person's theology for not supporting or blessing national Israel need be airtight. The biblical position and exegetical support for supersessionism better be very, very explicit, universally convincing, and beyond a shadow of a doubt given the stated deleterious results that are promised in Genesis 12.3. The difference in this case between God either blessing or cursing demands one's best exegetical abilities. Again, to erroneously adhere to replacement theology could jeopardize an individual's, a group's, or a nation's future. Supersessionists have a tall order to fill if they embrace and confidently promote God is finished with national Israel because on them is the scriptural burden of proof. At a minimum, they must convincingly argue from God's word the following. A. The promises God has made to Israel are no longer applicable to Israel. Does Scripture clearly enunciate that the obvious promises God made to Israel no longer inure to Israel, but instead to His church? How can God make numerous unconditional promises to Israel as a nation in the Old and New Testament, both in Genesis 12 and Romans 11, and then not fulfill them? Wherein does God in His Word specifically negate the promises he made in those passages. B. The church is the new Israel. They must demonstrate that Scripture clearly teaches that the church supersedes and eclipses Israel. Is the church specifically referred to as the replacement of national Israel? Or is the thesis of replacement theology based on one or two passages taken out of context, as we will examine later in this study? C. The church inherits Israel's covenants and blessings. Does Scripture clearly teach that in blessing his church, God will no longer bless ethnic Israel as a nation? The supersessionists have the responsibility to convincingly prove from biblical passages that Israel as a nation no longer has a place in God's future. Again, on them is the burden of proof. They must provide sound exegetical support for each of these three propositions in order to make their point. Anything less is to play with fire per Genesis 12. Clarifying Supersessionism Before testing more closely each of the three previous presuppositions in association with specific pivotal biblical texts, several further insights need first be mentioned in order to gain a broader understanding of this still prevalent theological viewpoint. These insights are as follows. A. They differentiate between spiritual Israel and national Israel. In order to construct and defend their position, supersessionists will often suggest that what the respective Bible writer had in mind when mentioning Israel, relative to passages that are problematic to their position, is this. Israel is a reference to Jews who came to Christ versus the ethnic nation of Israel. That convenient distinction will become increasingly evident as this study progresses. B. 
They unabashedly and munificently changed their hermeneutical approach to interpretation. This cavalier, what amounts to a hopscotch approach to interpreting the biblical text, is what really bothers me. When confronted with straightforward, plain passages that promise Israel's national return, they quickly suggest the scriptures have a non-literal meaning. This misrepresenting is somewhat similar to a referee changing the way he calls the game in the final two minutes. If replacement theologians applied the same privilege with the numerous passages dealing with their redemption, they would have no assurance of their salvation. C. They are sometimes motivated by anti-Semitism. To do justice to the topic, I need mention that anti-Semitism is sometimes the real driving force behind those who hold to a God-has-rejected-the-Jews viewpoint. Jewish racism amongst those who name the name of Christ is nothing new, as despicable, ungodly, and lacking in Christ-likeness as it is. Or as the former two caveats can be argued with objectivity, this last point is a matter of one's heart, and Scripture warns us not to judge another's heart. What is discernible, however, is an individual's intractable inability to be persuaded by cogent reasoning from prevalent multiple Bible texts and an underlying bitterness toward a group of people. Sometimes such stubbornness is due to anti-Semitism. This possibility should not be overlooked when dealing with those who adamantly and unlovingly profess God is done with the Jews. Condensing Supersessionism Lastly, by way of introduction, what follows is not a study on eschatology per se, nor a critique of premillennialism, postmillennialism, or amillennialism, even though granted a strong correlation exists between these camps. One either holds to non-supersessionism or supersessionism. To undertake a broadened discussion and correlation or not to these eschatological viewpoints would overwhelm the title, the focus, and the intent of this study. Suffice it to state the following in the next point. Counteractance to Supersessionism American evangelicalism in terms of its best-known national seminaries, radio preachers, parachurch ministries, and popular authors have unreservedly promoted a pro-Israel theology for many decades. The dispensational seminaries such as Dallas, Western, Denver, and Moody, the national radio and TV preachers such as DeHaan and the late Falwell, Jeremiah, MacArthur, the late McGee, Wearsby, Rogers, Stanley, and Swindoll, the parachurch ministries such as Crew, formerly Campus Crusade, Navigators, Youth for Christ, and Capital Ministries, the writing ministries of Hal Lindsey in The Late Great Planet Earth, and Tim LaHaye in his Left Behind series have all combined to inauspiciously affect the supersessionist's viewpoint in our day, to the point of it vanishing altogether. Nevertheless, regardless of marketplace momentum in one direction or another, the policymaker should root his convictions for or against replacement theology based on his personal exegesis of the Word of God. This study is an attempt to aid that decision. Comprehending Supersessionism's Hermeneutics More about a previous point is in order. 
supersessionists rely on several principles of interpretation in order to arrive at their conclusions. They are worth further mention so as to broaden understanding, background, and insight into their way of thinking when they examine the pivotal passages that constitute the debate. A brief explanation of each of their differing principles are as follows. A. The New Testament has an interpretive priority over the Old Testament. Most conservative expositors believe that Scripture is progressive in its revelation, i.e., what is mentioned skeletally, for example, in Genesis, is analogous to, but in full color, greater detail in the New Testament. But supersessionists believe that rather than providing additional and greater insight, the New Testament is not only an interpreter of the meaning of the Old Testament texts, but it can reinterpret them. More specifically in this regard, physical promises made to Israel by Old Testament prophets, they believe, are often reinterpreted by New Testament writers to have a spiritual fulfillment in the church. Accordingly, actual Old Testament predictions pertaining to Israel's future, physical restoration are, I believe, wrongly discounted. In suggesting that God in this way is now offering something greater, something that transcends the authorial intent of the Old Testament writer, is to rewrite and or reinterpret what the Old Testament author meant to the audience he communicated to at that time. But here's the major problem with that. Practicing their hermeneutic brings into question the integrity, infallibility, and immutability of Scripture as a whole. Bottom line, they are proffering that the biblical author really didn't mean what he said at the time he said it. This interpretation presents a real problem and is an affront to the basics of the biblical doctrine of bibliology, that the Bible is infallible and inerrant and plenarily inspired, which is a watershed issue as to how one views the Bible and its authority in an overall sense. B. Old Testament texts have spiritual versus literal fulfillments. In addition to Genesis 12 and Romans 11, a forthright reading of Bible texts such as Amos 9:11 through 15, Zechariah 14:16, and Joel chapter 3 verses 17 through 18 indicates that God has a plan to restore national Israel. Israel will once again someday possess the land, and that prophecy has already begun to be fulfilled. The intended meaning of these texts is difficult to miss. Again, the supersessionists argue that God fulfilled these promises in non-literal ways. But the problem with this position is that the other Old Testament prophecies already fulfilled are fulfilled both physically and literally. C. National Israel is a type of the New Testament church. Both supersessionists and non-supersessionists believe in Old Testament types, or typologies. A type in Scripture is a person or thing in the Old Testament that foreshadows a person or thing in the New Testament. A type is a prefigurement. For instance, Old Testament animal sacrifices that atone for the sins of Israelites foreshadow Christ's future ultimate sacrifice on the cross for the sins of mankind. The latter example is termed a superior antitype. In this way, supersessionists reason that Israel is a type 
and the church is the superior antitype. However, one cannot read into the Bible the existence of a type when the Bible does not specifically identify something as a type. To do so is to travel down the slippery slope of subjective interpretation of Scripture, reading types into everything imaginable. This is a form of eisegesis, which is defined by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary as the interpretation of a text, as of the Bible, by reading into it one's own ideas. In the hermeneutical school of typological interpretation, the interpreter becomes the power and force of a passage versus the way it's supposed to be. The definition is provided by the passage itself. Such as to superimpose a meaning that was unintended by the author or authors. No biblical evidence is found anywhere in the Bible to indicate that Israel was intended by God in the Old Testament to be a type relative to the church. To do so is to read into the text something that is not there in order to support one's predeterminations. This is eisegesis, not exegesis. These are three differing from the norm interpretive principles that supersessionists regularly employ to support their viewpoint that God is finished with Israel today. Contested Passages of Supersessionism What follows are their most common arguments from Scripture that are used to justify their belief that God is finished with Israel and, among other matters, perhaps imply that Israel is not worthy of America's special care. A. National Israel's Supposed Permanent Rejection Matthew 21, verse 43 Scripture says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. The passage wherein Jesus is addressing the Jewish leaders of his day is widely used to support this position. Replacement theology reasons that Israel permanently forfeited its blessing because of her rejection of Jesus. States Gerstner, quote, they have been tried and found wanting, end quote. Notice, however, that the word you is not clearly indicative of the nation Israel. Jesus could simply be addressing the present rejecting leaders. In fact, just two verses later, in Matthew 21, 45, the Jewish leaders indicate that Jesus was specifically addressing them. The nation of Israel is nowhere mentioned in this passage. Secondly, no reference is made to the church as being the replacement. The words Jesus uses here are given to a people. This could be a reference to individuals who are responsive to Jesus or to a better Israel in the future versus the self-righteous, pharisaical leaders. He is addressing those who suppress the multitudes to whom they were supposed to be pastoring. This is the position of Locke. In his book, Has the Church Replaced Israel? And Fruchtenbaum, in his book, Israelogy, the Missing Link in Systematic Theology. And finally, author McLean, in his book, The Greatness of the Kingdom. Even if given to a people or reference to the church, the passage does not rule out a future restoration of the nation Israel. Accordingly, this passage should not be used to roundly and conclusively suggests that God is finished with Israel, especially when at least 13 other books of the Bible state otherwise. B. Israel language supposedly applied to the church. 
Supersessionists believe that language depicting of Israel is applied to the church in the New Testament. They conclude that the New Testament therefore identifies the church as Israel. Let us take a careful look at a sampling of some of those passages in order to gain a better understanding of this assumptive error. Galatians 6.16 states, And those who will walk by this rule, peace, and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. This is the primary text cited by replacement theologians that supposedly indicates the church is called Israel in the New Testament. The reasoning, again, is that if you can say that the church is Israel in the New Testament, then you can conclude that God is done with Israel. Israel has been replaced by the church. The problem with this conclusion, however, is the overall context and main thesis of the epistle. The Galatian epistle is written to refute the Judaizers, those Jews in the Galatian church, who are teaching that salvation is not by faith alone in Christ alone, but by also keeping the Old Testament law, a wrong view of true salvation. Contextually and properly understood, this passage is saying, near the end of this strong polemic, Paul throws a bouquet to those Jews in this particular church who had not been corrupted by the Judaizers. He appropriately calls those who were trusting in Christ alone for their salvation the true Israel of God. Paul is making a distinction between the true believers of Jewish descendants and the Judaizers who he had already anathematized for their salvation doctrine heresy. Cross-reference Galatians 1, 6-9. They were the Israel, not of God, so to speak, in the sense of God's way of salvation always having been by faith alone, per Genesis 15.6. Contextually, Paul is closing his letter on an upbeat, and in part, commending genuine Jewish Christians who possessed a proper understanding and belief in what he and the other apostles taught about what it actually means to be saved. Commentator George aptly further states in this regard, quote, It is strange that if Paul intended simply to equate the Gentile believers with the people of Israel, that he would make this crucial identification here at the end of the letter, as opposed to including it in the main body where he developed at length the argument for justification by faith. In fact, the scriptures always mention Israel in the context of national Israel, not in a confusing sense as the church and in violation of the principle of the perspicuity of Scripture. There are no passages in the whole of the New Testament that say the church is Israel or that the church is a replacement of Israel, end quote. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. Scripture says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The small capital letters in the Lachman Foundation's New American Standard Bible are intended by the translation team to serve to indicate Old Testament passages, in this case Deuteronomy 7, 6-8. through 8 that are being repeated and quoted by the New Testament author. This feature of this particular Bible translation is very helpful. In this sense, in 1 Peter 2, 9-10, Peter is using Old Testament terms spoken by Moses 
to identify Israel, and to describe those who have trusted in Christ for salvation, folks who in the New Testament are a part of the church. If both Israel and the church are God's people, relative to God's old covenant with Israel, and his new covenant with the church, does it not follow that the same descriptors could apply to each? Such is this case, but here's the point. Simply because Israel terms are applicable as well to the church, does not mean that the church is Israel. Importantly to the study, the passage makes no claim that the church has replaced Israel. Romans 11:16 through 24. We now arrive at the crux passage in the debate. Rather than quote this lengthy passage herein relative to space considerations, just make sure you take the time to read it. Again, that's Romans 11:16 through 24. This passage speaks about the Gentiles being grafted in with a literary device, a metaphor of an olive tree. Gentiles are depicted as the wild olive branch being grafted into the rich root of the olive tree, i.e. Israel. This beautiful language depicts an easy-to-understand parallel that seems to underscore the proposition of replacement theology. The later portion of the passage, however, works against their position. Paul goes on to reason that the Gentiles should not feel superior to the natural branches, i.e., the Jews, because God has the power to graft them in again, chapter 11, verse 23. And such will be the case per Romans 11, verse 26. C. Supersessionists must somehow overcome the clear New Testament pronunciation of Romans 11:26. They must discount all Israel will be saved. In the context of the earlier portions of this passage, 11.23, the meaning is quite evident. God has the power to someday graft back in national Israel. This understanding is underscored by the beginning of Romans 11, wherein in verse 1 Paul states, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. The straightforward meaning of this passage, with a due, normal reading, is not hard to comprehend. Supersessionists believe, however, that all Israel means believing Jews and Gentiles, i.e., that the all Israel Paul is speaking about is the church. Context, however, does not support such an exaggerated understanding, especially in light of the verse that immediately follows, 1126, verse 1127, which states, This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Since the church is made of those who have had their sins taken, then all Israel cannot be a reference to the church. So it follows that Paul does not have believers in mind when he says, All Israel. Rather, this passage serves to underscore that God has not, nor will he forget in the end times, the promises he has made to Israel in Genesis 12. That is the simple understanding of the passage. Accordingly, it is difficult to understand why supersessionists view Romans 11 as favorable to their position, as it is not in the least bit. Rather, it serves to negate their position. D. The Silence of the New Testament By reinterpreting the normal meaning of Romans 9-11, through 11, supersessionists believe incorrectly that the New Testament does not speak to Israel's restoration, but that God is done with them. The non-supersessionists take just the opposite view, 
Romans 9 through 11 does speak to their restoration, as do other passages, including Acts 1-6 and Matthew 19-28. All three passages evidence Israel's restoration, and the last two by no other than Jesus himself. Note Acts 1-6, which says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were asking when the kingdom of Israel would be restored. In what follows after Acts 1-6, Jesus would not provide the direct answer to their question, but neither did he correct their assumption. Note Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, which says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In the eschatological future, when Jesus returns and reigns, this passage more than suggests Israel will be there also. These two aforementioned passages were utilized by commentator Peters in response to the supersessionists' claim that the New Testament was silent about the future of Israel. So overwhelming was his exegetical argument that many of his opponents conceded the debate. Cross-reference the theocratic kingdom of our Lord Jesus, the Christ, as covenanted in the Old Testament, again by author Peters. Similar to the Old Testament prophets, Jesus and the New Testament are not silent about the restoration of national Israel. Again, at least 13 books of the Bible speak plainly and clearly about God's intent in the end times to restore national Israel. The Culmination of Supersession's Theological Argumentation Romans chapters 9 through 11 categorically teach that there is a future for national Israel. For no other reasons, and I have listed many, the arguments of the supersessionists in their attempts to discount Israel's future fail in light of the strong, powerful, and straightforward passage. Waving the flag for this position is unsubstantiated, especially in light of the conditions and ensuing jeopardy that are stated in the Abrahamic promise of Genesis 12. One must be very contemplative relative to how he or she treats national Israel. God has big plans for and is protective of her. Our summary. Both the Old Testament and New Testament teach that Israel will be restored as a nation. Israel has a promised perpetuity that is nowhere discounted in or by Scripture. Furthermore, there is a perpetual, recurring biblical clarification and separateness between Israel and the church. These sober facts render the supersessionist position suspect. Accordingly, the advocates of replacement theology are out of bounds when they herald with peril, God is finished with Israel. To the discerning, their arguments are specious and lacking in exegetical substance. Every policymaker needs to deeply ponder the implications of supersessionism with utmost reflection, seriousness, and prayer. No biblical reasons exist to believe that God is finished with Israel, and there are no godly reasons to justify being anti-Israel. Our nation must stand with Israel because he commands it, and also for fear of the God-given consequences otherwise. Friends, I encourage you to find more studies like this one on the Capital Ministries website, which is capmin.org. There you can also learn about in-depth weekly discipleship Bible studies 
taking place in capitals throughout our nation and around the world. You may be called to lead such studies with public servants in your community. Thanks to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us on the podcast. Here at LifeAudio.com, you will also find more faith-centered podcasts. This concludes our Bible study for this week. May God bless you deeply. Thank you for all you do in our great country and on the Hill. This is Frank Sontag.